just in the name of Jesus. And it's such a vital time that we're living in, Father, that we really do need to fellowship one with another and um, encourage one another, lift up one another, one another up in prayer. And may this uh, evening, Father, be a sweet savour before your throne. And we just bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, now I don't know if you all got your notes. Um, Helene sent them out to as many people if we've got email contacts and that sort of thing. But we're going to do chapter 3 tonight of 1 Corinthians. There are also in the chat. What's that, Eric? Um, I've also put the, the notes in the chat box. Oh, okay. All right, that's fine. Um, so we're going to, I'm going to try and push on and try, uh, but you know me, it doesn't really work very often, but I'm going to try and do a chapter a night because there are um, um, 16 in this book and uh, uh, then we want to move on to uh, some more work that we're going to do before the end of the year. Um, and uh, so even though I tend to dig down deep into verses, um, I, I'm going to try and push on and get through chapter three tonight. Um, uh, it's, it's particularly interesting that um, a, a, a Bible teacher I respect and, and I, I um, listen to him um, uh, has just started a, an online teaching of Genesis. Uh, which is, um, I'm sort of smiling because it's mildly problematic because um, uh, he's recently done um, the book of Daniel um, and took uh, about one and, one and a third years to do Daniel. Um, and he's just recently finished Revelation and that was nearly 18 months, uh, and Revelation has got uh, 22 chapters in it. So given that Genesis has got 50 chapters, I'm estimating that it'll take over 200 years before we can get to the end of this book. So we might have to finish it off in the Millennial Kingdom, but uh, looking forward to it anyway. Um, and so we're going to go, so we're going to hit um, chapter 3 tonight, and just as a as a summary of, of, of what we've uh, done so far, um, one of my favourite uh, commentators from a long time ago just titled the, the, um, the letter to the first letter to the Corinthians was "What's Wrong with the Corinthian Church?" And then he said, "Well, what's it really means? What's wrong with us?" because the issues that confronted the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago are the same issues that are confronting the church today. And therefore, because there's so many issues within the Corinthian church, the third point that um, the teacher brought up was what's really wrong with me. And so every one of these studies is given to us for quiet contemplation after the study is how do I measure up when I consider myself relative to what's going on in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And, and I just love it because as a pastor, the, the letters to the Corinthian church um, deal with just about everything that you could um, uh, confront in, in pastoral leadership. And the, the essential issues that Paul deals with in this letter is the centrality of the cross, and that's divine plus divine wisdom versus human wisdom. He deals with the work of the Holy Spirit and illumination. He deals with carnality. 
uh, eternal rewards, the transformation through salvation, the nature of Christ, our union with him and the divine role of women. Oh boy, we're going to have fun with that one later on. Um, and marriage and divorce, uh, spirit baptism, um, and uh, spirit indwelling and gifting, the unity of the church in one body, the theology of love, and the doctrine of the resurrection and universalism. So there's enough in this one letter to upset everyone that's on the screen at the moment mm. and everyone that's, that's, uh, that's coming. So, um, and this guy, I was listening to him just the other day uh, devotionally because he was teaching 30 years ago in Costa Mesa in um, California. And uh, he used to do Wednesday nights uh, under Chuck Smith at Costa Mesa. And uh, he, was, he was in a jovial mood in this particular instance. And he said that um, he could guarantee that almost no one in a very large audience would agree with everything that he teaches. But the unifying message that should and must be agreed by all of us who have gathered together tonight in this Bible study and every Christian everywhere throughout the world must be the centrality of the cross and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, which centered on that cross. If we don't have that centrality in, uh, and our unity around that, that uh, issue, then, you know, we, have, we really have no faith because that is the one issue that separates us from every other religion in the world. We have a, a God that came down and died for us, that we might be reunited with um, our Father through his sacrifice. And every other pagan religion in the world is based on human beings trying to please God. And, and that's the total contrast that we have between Christianity and any other religion. And we may uh, disagree with one another on what I call the secondary issues, and we can talk about those all the time. Um, but all I do is I try so hard just to agree with the written word of, of the scriptures and, and, and work upon that. And so everything else is, is something that we can learn and deal with. And, um, and by the way, I've had people emailing me lately on, on issues that have been worrying them. And I got a really good, um, uh, there was a, uh, a message just recently how um, one of my favorite Messianic Jewish um, um, contacts got a, a question asked by uh, a young person who or young believer who actually texted him and said, listen, my mother has just passed away and I have absolutely no confidence that she was a believer. So what's her fate? And he dealt with that in, in a very biblical way. And, um, uh, and, and people need these things. And, and some people have just been texting me or uh, emailing me lately about certain issues. So if you want to do that, please, by all means, do it through the, um, through the uh, email that's on the website. And so let's get into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to get people. Um, how's the microphone, Eric? Is it okay? Just yeah, good. as good as gold. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get people in the room 
Um, two, how many was there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, we've got um, 23. So I'm going to get them to read two verses each and in a big, loud voice. I don't want quiet voices. I want clear voices so that everyone can hear on the, um, on the screen. And if we can start with um, John and just work around this way and two verses each, uh, starting with, and I brethren, chapter three, verse one. <clears throat> and I brethren could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted Apollos, watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For one can lay a foundation other like, no for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, <coughs> hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work, of what sort it is. If oh, do I go? Yeah. Mm. If anyone, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures. He will receive the reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself, for if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. <laughs> for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, which is the Apostle Peter, or the world of life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And so it's a, it's a brilliant passage. It's got two of my favorite um, um, issues uh, in it. 
But I just want to um, highlight sort of verses 1 to 4, and if you have a look in your notes, if you haven't, um, we will... Um, Paul here, because he's in the, in the first two chapters, in, verse, in chapter 1, he, he used verse 1 to um, lay before the Corinthian church's apostolic authority. But in, in emphasizing his apostolic authority, he's then spending the next several chapters to say that that doesn't make me any better than you, except that I am imparting Christian teaching and doctrine to you. And in verses 2 through 9, he gives the Corinthian church a reminder of their what we call positional truth. That is the 33 gifts that you get from God, your heavenly father, the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ. And those gifts are amazing. And we've done um, half of them in a, in a separate teaching. Um, and, and he, but he says that you are called to be saints. You are sanctified by the Holy Spirit and you belong to Jesus and you belong to God the Father. And then he uh, really has a go at them from 10 to 17 for being carnal, childish and silly when they line up behind particular um, uh, people uh, that they tend to elevate over everyone else. And, and uh, some align themselves with Paul, some, some align themselves with Apollos, some uh, align themselves with the Apostle Peter, and some even aligned themselves, goodness me, with Jesus Christ himself. And, and even though the, the last group might have some merit to their, to their um, focus, the whole point is that those things cause divisions in a church. And that's why Paul is always emphasizing the centrality of the cross and Jesus Christ. And so he, he tries really hard to level the playing field that no one Christian should be elevated above anyone else. And that's still a, a, a human habit that we have in the 20th century, 21st century, that we do elevate people, um, our, our favorite you know, people either online or in churches or having written books or whatever, or, or prophecy experts that uh, travel around the world. Um, that really is an offense to God because everyone is gifted in one way or another and all God expects us to do is to exercise our gifts to the encouragement and the enrichment of other Christians. And so to elevate people above and beyond what, what, uh, uh, what God, in, in the manner that God um, um, regards them, is really, Paul is saying, that's incredibly immature and it causes problems in the church. Uh, and he's really um, hitting that, that divisionism and he calls it carnality. And then from um, 18 to 21, verses 18 to 21, he concentrates on the message of the cross. And from the message of the cross, he leads into a passage there from 21 to, to uh, 22 to 31, where he contrasts divine wisdom with human wisdom. And in Corinth, um, Greek culture at that time, it was really bound up in this um, philosophical, intellectual um, um, 
debating style where they had even amphitheaters that could hold 20,000 people, but the acoustics were so good and they would actually entertain themselves by getting scholars and intellectuals um, and people with differing points of views and they would have these hour-long debates um, and people would be interested in, in who was winning the debate. It would be a bit like Ravi Zacharias preaching without the without the face, do you know what I mean? It was that kind of intellectual um, um, uh, sort of... It was their fascination. And, and the background to this whole... Corinthian thing thing is in Acts chapter 18, nearly all of chapter 18, where people would gather together to listen to the latest theory or the latest philosophy and the latest argument, and that's how Paul caught the um, Athenians' attentions by going along to the Areopagus where they have these debates in Athens, and then Paul addressed the, the, um, the Stoics and the Epicureans who were there, and he said, you're talking about various gods and you've got statues to various gods, but I noticed that you have a statue to an unknown god and I'm going to tell you all about him. And that's how he um, introduced uh, our Heavenly Father to the Athenians. He didn't have a lot of success the first time. So he, he moved on to Corinth. But it's the same thing that people want to argue philosophy um, rather than get to the simple elements of the Christian faith. And, uh, and then in chapter 2, it's all about um, wisdom and maturity and the power of the Holy Spirit leading us on rather than our own human intellect. And here in verses 3, in, in verse 1 to 4, and you'll see in my notes, Paul really is quite um, brokenhearted because he's writing this letter from Ephesus because he received a letter from Chloe, who's a member of this church, who was really upset about the divisions and the carnality that was happening, happening in, the, um, in the Corinthian church. And so Paul is writing back to the Corinthian church via Chloe's household and, and really um, in various ways telling them off for being childish, but encouraging them to come back to the essentials of, of the faith. And in this, in the verse one, he says, I could not speak to you, brethren, as spiritual people, that is spirit-filled people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. And um, this is an ongoing problem and has been an ongoing problem for 2,000 years. And I'm not going to turn there because we, we, we are time constrained tonight, but the same problem um, uh, arises in Hebrews chapter five, now, these Corinthian believers have only been a believe, believers for about three or four years by the time Paul is writing this letter. And there was also a previous letter that we've lost, no, that there is no um, record of it being found and included in the canon. But he had already written to them before this, and so this is what uh, we call 1 Corinthians, but it really is the second letter they had written to him. And then after this particular letter came what's called the severe letter where he really got stuck into them for their behaviour. And then he ended up with uh, the, the letter that we call 2 Corinthians to finish it all off. But he's really getting, in the, sorry, in the um, chapter 5 in, in the Hebrews letter, the writer to the Hebrew Christians is berating them for the same problem that Paul is dealing with in the Corinthian church and that the, the Hebrew believers are 
can only can, uh, receive simple, elemental truths of the Christian faith, and it's called milk. It's called the milk of the word, and, and as the passage that John wrote out, that he wanted to give them strong meat, but he couldn't give them strong meat because they weren't able to, to um, grasp it and receive it because they were the, their fleshly desires and their carnal behaviour stopped the Holy Spirit from maturing them in, inwardly and so that they could receive the deeper things of God. And, and he's in the Corinthian, uh, sorry, in the Hebrews uh, example, the writer to these particular believers in, in Hebrews, they had been Christians for 30 years and were still babes in Christ and still needing reassurance and teaching and the basic elemental um, um, facts around Christianity. And in verse 2, Paul is saying, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're not even able. And so um, one of the things that, that people ask is, so what would Paul be telling the Corinthians as far as the milk of the word versus the things that really should be um, what we are um, what we are striving to learn when we come to these Bible studies and we, we exegete the, the passages very carefully. Um, and and what, we, what Paul would have um, been telling the Corinthians when he established the church, that he would have given them the background to creation and who created the creation. He would have given them the background to the fall and the origin of sin and he would have given them um, a background to the call of Abraham. He would have done the, the flood first and then the call of Abraham, the, the setting apart of the nation of Israel to be God's conduit to his truth to the wider world. Israel was called to be a witness for the, for the whole world, and they failed um, more or less in their, in their um, um, requirements. But the funny thing about Israel is that, you know, three and a half thousand years later, they're still there. So their very existence at the very least was, is, is uh, uh, proof of, of God and, and uh, the fact that the, the Bible is historically true. But the things that um, um, there was the centrality of the cross and the death and the resurrection, Christ paying for the penalty of sin, that, and therefore that whoever so believe in Jesus Christ will be transformed into a new creature in Christ, and therefore we are what we call saved, and we have an eternal destiny, and we are no longer citizens on this earth, but we're citizens in heaven. So those are all the elemental things that Paul would be um, um, uh, focusing on. But, you know, I've, I've got... Um, um, have you got James 1? Are you, can you operate uh, the, the scriptures uh, there? James 1 and 12, uh, verse 12, all right? And um, can you take the white back, the, 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 um, the, there's the a white um, background. background come up and it makes it very hard to read the scriptures, Eric. No, <laughs> yeah, get rid of that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bye. 
They'll leave. <laughs> so if you leave them on, that's it. Okay, blessed is the man who endures in temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to him. We're going to get that in, in, into a little while. That's, that's the crowns. Um, that is what he's trying to lead them up to. That, that we are going to be blessed out of our socks when we finally make it to heaven and we realize what God has done for us and how he has blessed us. But he's dealing with in these first four, four um, verses about carnality. In verse 3 he says, For you're still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And that carnal word is, is, is sarks, it's flesh. And, and it's, it's a word that's used hundreds of times in the Bible um, in, in its Hebrew terms and in its um, um, Greek terms. But it relates to the either the old sin nature, the old man, bodily lusts and desires, carnal and wrong thoughts and thinking, and every single thing that can lure us away from the spirit-filled life. And that's why Paul, in, in um, other uh, um, letters, he exhorts people, particularly the, the um, Ephesians believers, to stop getting drunk all the time and, in, in contrast, being filled with the Spirit. Um, and, you know, this is a problem right throughout all of the letters, Pauline letters that we have in the Bible, that he's dealing with people who are, um, almost in like a seesaw. One day they're very spiritual and the next day they've gone back to being carnal again and then, you know, they make it back into the spirit-filled life again. Well, hello, welcome to the, welcome to the 21st century. Um, the, there is nothing new under the sun when it comes to human behaviour and the struggle for believers to put off our old lifestyle and and focus on what God has what God has for us. Stuart, may I put something in here? Quickly, very quick. Yeah. What I heard today, one of the people yeah. I talked, where it says that we are blessed those who hear that the ears are for Christ yeah. and the eyes are for Satan. Yeah, yeah, see the yeah, sin nature yeah, of everything yeah. you want. Yeah. Sorry, I just no, 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 that's fine. And, and now that you've said that, you brought something that I can bring up now. Because how was it that Satan got Eve to to stumble? What was after he said to spoke to Eve? What did she then turn around and do? She stared at the tree. You see, God, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But the problem is that the eyes are what Satan often uses to take our mind off spiritual things and go back to carnal and fleshly things. Um, you know, I, uh, um, I used to be, uh, and Cheryl can relate to this when we, Sue and I and the kids were living up in the northeastern gold fields. Um, everyone drove a four-wheel drive. So I used to um, um, elevate four-wheel drives and various four-wheel drives. So I, um, I used to look with um, eyesightly lust on, you know, well-equipped four-wheel drives when we were up in the desert. Um, and, and, you know, you can, you, you, can, you, can, you can excuse yourself that it's a... Um, that it's a necessity, but sometimes um, you can overload your necessity with accessories to an extreme degree. 
And, and I mean, we're all guilty of that. I mean, some people like clothes, some people like um, overseas trips, some people Sport. like this, this, that, the next yeah. thing. These are the things that we really, um, they're not going to kill the spirit life, but, you know, they're a diversion. And, and it requires self-discipline to bring us back to the things that are really important um, uh, to us as uh, Christians. And so... In, in verses 5 and 6, I know it is in the King James, in verses 5 and 6, Paul is saying in verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? And he, he's saying, you guys are lifting us up, and I'm asking you, who are we really? And in the New King James, it says, but we are ministers through whom you have believed. Other translations, the New American Standard, and the, I think the King James has the word servants. Um, and the servants is closer to what Paul is getting at because in the Greek, that word actually means under rowers. And people's going, what are under rowers? They were bad. Have you ever seen the movie Ben-Hur? Yes. Ever, ever, anyone seen the movie, yeah. movie Ben-Hur? It's, it's really worth watching. But Ben-Hur got... In very, in very serious trouble with the, the uh, Roman authorities in the time of Jesus. And he was um, sentenced to uh, life as an under rower on a Roman uh, warship. And if you can remember the scenes um, uh, on, in that film where Ben-Hur was chained to his oar with someone else and there were two levels in, in these um, um, Roman warships, there was the upper level, which where you were closer to fresh air and, and sort of um, easier to breathe, and there were the under rowers down virtually just above the bilge. And they were the ones that were in most um, danger because if one ship rammed another ship, they were automatically killed. And if they weren't killed by the collision, they'd be killed by drowning. And so the very worst um, um, level of existence in the Roman Empire at that time would be under rowers. And Paul is trying to shock these Corinthians, these intellectual Corinthians, by saying that we are servants. We are, in, in fact, under rowers trying to move you closer to Christ, trying to get you to grow up and mature in Jesus Christ. And it's a... We miss the, the, the shock value of that word that Paul is trying to use there, but he's calling himself an under rower. And he said, it's because of our hard work, we have, we have enabled you to come to faith as the Lord has given each of us the gifts either to um, evangelize or to, or to grow you in the faith. And he deals with this. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered in verse 6, but God gave the increase. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what gifting that we have, so long as we exercise it. If we see fruit coming from our, our ministry, please don't get puffed up because it's God that's doing a work in each and every individual. And you and I, if we're doing the evangelism, if we're doing the encouragement, if we're doing the, the bringing people you know, back on, online you know, in methods by correction, what we are doing is simply being servants of the living God. 
and, and to elevate yourself or to be elevated in the ministry is actually lowering the value of what God is actually doing. Do you see what I mean? It's almost a blasphemy. So Paul is really hitting these guys in this area. And verse 7, he says, So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters. And he's talking about elevation. So one cannot be um, 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 elevated against another. And this is an interesting verse because uh, years and years and years ago, I listened to a preacher uh, whose son um, had led several people um, to Christ. Uh, and his, his son was a teenager and, and he had a, a slight intellectual disability, but that made him, uh, it, gave him it gave him an ability to reach people or to address people because he wasn't challenging and, and they would listen to what he said. And he had this ability to give the gospel in a way that they would even consider it. And this guy unfortunately said, now my son is going to be a prince in the kingdom to come because he's been winning all of these people to Christ. And this is what Paul is hitting in these few verses, that you do not elevate any aspect of Christian ministry against above anything else because it's God that's in control of everything. And it's to our, our heavenly credit, and we'll see this later in, in, in a few verses, it's to our credit that we just do what God asks us to do, mm -hmm. just to do what God gifts us to do. And so um, in verse 8 he says, Now he who plants and he who waters are the same, it's our one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And, you know, part of the problem in the Corinthian church and part of the problem in the modern church is that people get jealous of other people's ministries. And that's the same carnality that these people here are, um, are guilty of because it's like now Paul's been going all around Asia Minor and Macedonia and, and uh, Greece and planting all these churches. What's the big deal about Paul? And Paul's saying, there is no big deal about me. I'm just doing what I'm told to do. But when he plants a church, which is his God-given gift, he then leaves people behind to, to look after the church. And that ministry is just as important as Paul's ministry. And, and uh, he's hitting this time and time and time again. And he says, in verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. Now, on verse 8, I'm going to go back to verse 8 because this is where the, the verses that Eric brought up before and I brought them up too early. It's not Eric's fault, it's mine's fault. You know, when you receive a reward, it's because you've done what God has asked you to do. And these, believe it or not, are what we call the five crowns. Uh, has anyone heard about the five crowns? Uh, well, there could be more. There could be more, but that means that you're really after more than, um, than perhaps you deserve. In fact, as we, as we, no, I'm just talking generally. I'm not aiming at anything. 
for anyone in the room. So listen, I want you to, to concentrate on verse 8 and we have a look at the crown of life. So Eric, can you bring up James 1.12, please? Wonderful. Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Okay, so the crown of life um, is for people who have persevered under trials and persecution and even martyrdom. And we see this in Revelation 2.10, if we can have the next verse. Uh, that's it. Do not fear. Uh, we're having these screens pop up um, behind the... the um, that's it. That's better. That's wonderful. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. This is Jesus himself talking to the church of Pergamos. And the, sorry, it's Smyrna. And the Smyrna church um, is representative of the persecuted church and the martyred church from really around about 100 AD through to about 300 AD. And there were some terrible, terrible persecutions by the Roman Empire, uh, Roman emperors at this time, and tens of thousands of Christians throughout the Roman Empire were martyred for their faith. And Jesus is saying, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. That's a very fascinating um, phrase that I can't get into tonight. But there were 10 particular Roman emperors that really laid into Christians in that period of time over those 200 years. And that is the, the and Jesus is saying to the Smyrna believers that you are going to get, receive the crown of life. I have never really seen Christians put their hand up and volunteer for the crown of life, but there have been Christians throughout the last 2,000 years who have um, um, have had to undergo this kind of trial, and theirs is the crown of life. The second crown is the crown incorruptible or the crown imperishable, and that's in this very, chapter 9 of this very uh, letter that we're studying, and it's uh, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And so Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? And he's talking about Christians reaching for the prize. But one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And because the Corinthians had the, the games um, every two years in Corinth, the, the uh, um, what was it called? It wasn't the Corinthian games, the Peloponnesian games. And so everyone in, in Corinth, you could not uh, uh, engage in those games unless you had proven yourself as undergoing training for nine months before the games came around. You had to be accredited as a trained athlete before you were even allowed to enter the, the contest. And Paul is using these analogies to try and get us to realize that we are in a um, like a, a race and and uh, you know we're reaching out for the prize which Jesus has at the end of it but he said so he's using these um, athletic analogies particularly for the Corinthians he doesn't do it in any of other um, letters because they're not they wouldn't understand the relevance 
And so he says, run in such a way that you may obtain it. Verse 25. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain not an imperishable crown, but an imperishable crown. 26. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, but I fight and not as one who just beats the air. And that's what boxing um, um, athletes were doing. They would be running, seriously, this is true, they would be running around Corinth and the, the area around Corinth, practicing their, you know, their, their pugilistic skills as if they were just beating the air. And so Paul is saying, I'm not like that. I, when I put my gifting into practice, I'm dealing with people and the salvation of people. And so that's the crown incorruptible. The third crown is the crown of righteousness. And we see that in 2 Timothy, um, um, I think I've got 6 to 8. 2 Timothy, Eric? Yeah, that's good. No, it's... it's um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. This is the crown of righteousness. For I, Paul, this is, this is a sad letter. 2 Timothy is a sad letter because Paul has already been told he's about to be executed. And so he's writing his last prison letter to Timothy from Rome. And he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and notice this, I have kept the faith. Verse 8, finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Listen to his confidence. And, and it, it's amazing. He's not boasting about this, but he's giving Timothy, a young minister who he has left behind in Ephesus, encouragement to stay the course like he has and Jesus is going to give it to Paul on that day when he stands before him when we all stand before the judgment seat not to me only but also to all who has loved his appearing and I don't it's remarkable in the days that we are now living in that COVID-19 has been forcing so many Christians to want Jesus to come back yeah. tomorrow, if you don't mind, Lord. And, and this is the crown of righteousness that will be given to people. Um, and, and so that's really a relevant uh, crown that we're all crying out for. And by the way, theologically, it's pointed out in, in the MacArthur Study Bible that given that Jesus' righteousness is imputed to every born-again believer, everyone who is in heaven, in the church, is going to receive this this crown because it's the crown of righteousness. Because you have his righteousness imputed by you. You cannot gain your own righteousness. So the, in the MacArthur Study Bible, he, he said that this is one crown, or the team of theologians say this is the one crown that you are going to get in heaven. If you have to balance more on top of your head, so be it. But that's the, that's the one that we at least all get. That's the crown of righteousness. And then the fourth crown 
is the crown of glory. And it's in 1 Peter 5, 2 to 4. What about Christians? Oh, sorry. No? Christians who don't want Jesus to come back. Like I've heard a lot of them say, But if they are born again Christians, you can't take that away from them. Because in order to be in order to be a born again Christian, you have to have Christ's righteousness imputed to you. So, so you're going to get really it. the longing for appearing. Yeah, well, the glory one. Yeah, it, oh. no, the glory, no, the glory is is um, I. Sorry, the glory, no, no, the glory is look. The the the, the footnotes to. The, the, this passage in the MacArthur Study Bible is that because everyone has imputed righteousness, you can't dodge that crown. Um, and, and see, this is where you think, oh, that's not fair because I'm longing for him to come. And, you know, Bertha wants to go on her European trip next year. Um, <laughs> it's not really fair according to a child. And yeah, it's not, yeah. But, but, yeah. but the fact is, if you were really. The, the, the highest level of maturity in Christian Christianity, you'd be grateful to get that crown. Yeah. You know what I mean? You would you'd really um, um, try and grab it. But the crown of glory, which is the fourth crown, is in 1 Peter 5, um, 2 to 4. And that is, um, this is shepherding the flock. So shepherd the flock of God which is among you, uh, and this is Peter talking, I am shepherding the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor being as lords over those entrusted to you. And this is the thing that Paul's emphasizing. No one should be elevated above any other Christian. And in fact, in the seven letters to Jesus, uh, uh, from Jesus uh, to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, there are two churches that he esteems. He doesn't criticize two churches. Um, do you know which churches they are? Yeah. And Smyrna. Philadelphia and Smyrna. And the interesting thing about those two churches that he doesn't criticize he mentions the deeds of the Nicolaitans in both those churches. And he said, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans as do I. Yeah. And what are the Nicolaitans? The ones that lord it over. The, the ones that, the very thing that, that, that Peter's telling people not to do, not to lord it over those entrusted to you. And we see what's happened in the last 2,000 years when we have established religions for instance, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the, the um, Catholic Church, they have complex hierarchies yeah. of people who lord it over the laity. And, and Jesus says, and of course, Nicolaitan is two Greek words, Nico, which is to rule over, and laity is the people. And that's what, that we're not supposed to do that. And, and it, it amazes me how uh, strifes and jealousies in churches um, sometimes centre around um, someone who really wants to be the pastor of the church or in the, or in the pastoral uh, um, team of the church. Seriously, if you've done being a pastor, it is not lording it over the flock. I'll tell you what, you are a servant to all. And uh, just before we went online, I was just saying that we had a very, very busy day in Calvary Chapel Perth yesterday. 
and my wife got close to a hundred texts from people needing help on, on one day. So, you know, and, and she was already working with her elderly lady in a dementia ward. So it was like, um, you know, you do not lord it over the laity. You serve the people. You serve the flock. Verse 4, Eric, if you can. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And uh, that's for all who shepherd the flock in unselfish love. Okay, now that's the one that you need to be aware of that. If you're a Nicolaitan, I don't know that you're going to be um, an eligible for this particular one. It's like, see, the, Sue and I were talking this afternoon preparing this message that we were looking at... Um, uh, we used to sing a song nearly 20 years ago, a very gentle little praise song about Jesus being the servant king. And that, and it was a beautiful, simple little song. I'm still trying to find it, but it's all about um, Jesus coming down as the servant of Jehovah to pay the penalty for all of us, which we have taken um, advantage of in believing in him. And the fifth crown is the crown of rejoicing, and that's in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. And it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? You know, when we get up there, you're going to meet people that you met 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and they're going to come up and say to you, it was because of something you said to me that I went to the local church and I got saved. And you're, you're going to say, I don't remember saying that. Well, you did say that. And you were used by God to get someone to go to church or to listen to the gospel. And it's that, that crown of rejoicing that, that, uh, you, that you're going to be up there with all of these people that you've met over the, the course of your Christian life and you will say things to them that don't stay in your mind but were foundational in then coming to Christ. And uh, I can remember way back when it would have been early 2000s when I was assistant pastor down in, in um, Canningvale. I used to do this revelation study um, on Sunday nights and we had these young teenagers that were a bit sort of um, knockabout. And I didn't. I, I, I saw them the first night, and I thought, "Well, this will be a once-off." They <laughs> stayed the whole year for that no. study. And you know, um, about nine years later, when we had uh, a Chuck Missler conference um, in Perth, this young guy came up to me uh, in amongst eleven hundred people, and he says, "I remember you. You did Revelation at such and such church." And it's just, a, it's, it fills you with joy, you know, that, that you have that kind of um, influence on people. And, you know, hopefully he's gone on to teach other people, you know, the book of Revelation. I just need to be a good steward. Hmm? It's I just what? need to be a good steward. You need to be a good steward. Indeed, indeed, indeed you do. All right, let's go over the page. What have we got to here? Now. Verse 9 is, is the, we are God's fellow workers in, in uh, sorry, yeah, and you are God's field and you are God's building. Now, we need to go to um, Matthew 13, chapter 13. 
and I think it's versus um, 44 to 46. Yeah, these are these are the um, things called the kingdom um, parables, and and they're a study all of their own. They are brilliant, but. This is what is happening here in verse 44. This is Jesus saying, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hid in a field. Now, Paul's just called you God's field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And people go and say, see, you've got to tithe a lot in order to gain your salvation. That's not what it means. Can you go back to 44 if you can, um, Eric? That's right. You cannot buy your salvation. You cannot earn yourself your salvation. It's a faith. It's a belief. It's a trust thing. And so people have said, this is what you have to do in order to get your salvation. This is not a man, this is Jesus, because it's Jesus started this whole passage in verse 37 saying, and the son of man is the sower of the seed. And he's doing all of these agricultural parables to show people what the mystery kingdom is that's about to come about. And a man who found this treasure hidden in a field goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Who paid the price for us? That man is the son of man, that's Jesus, who gave up all for the treasure that he found hidden in a field. And um, my favourite messianic theologian maintains that this refers to Jewish believers. Okay, can we go to 45? Thanks, Sarah. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, 46, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. Notice the parallels. Notice the same method. So he found treasure hidden in the field. And in the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as God's treasure. Now we're dealing with a pearl. And for a Jewish person, a pearl is not kosher. But a pearl here um, um, infers that these are the Gentile believers. That have, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative. Yes, 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 it really is a narrative. Um, and it's the pearl of great price. And once again, this man went and sold all he had and bought it. So Jesus paid the price for both Jewish and believers and Gentile believers to be made one new creation in the church of Jesus Christ. And and so th- this is what Paul would have been inferring in, in verse 9, that got you are God's field and you are God's building. So building is the 1 Peter passage, um, Eric. 1 Peter 2, 4. So that not only are we God's um, treasure in the field or the pearl of great price, but we are living stones rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. Next verse. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is where you need to give yourself over with this verse to being filled with the Spirit because carnal people say, but I don't look like a house. No, you don't look like a house. But if you're looking through God's eyes, he sees a multitude of people that are being built up as living stones in a living temple that he is going to dwell with in the new heavens and the new earth in, in Revelation 21 and 22. And Paul is telling you that, sorry, Peter is telling you that this is what's happening to you at the moment. You are living stones coming together in a temple which God is going to come down and tabernacle with in the in the new age to come, in the in the eternal state. And so Paul is, is bringing up all of these different things. He, he told the uh, elders of the church at Ephesus on the beach at Miletus that I have never held back from teaching you the whole counsel of God. And this is what Peter's, Peter, sorry, um, Peter and Paul are pointing out, that you, all of the Christians uh, in the, in the um, first century got the whole counsel of God except for revelation. That was, that, that, you had to be really old to get that. I mean, John was 100 when he died, mm -hmm. and he was 95 when he, we, when he had that book dictated to him. But Paul, don't forget that after Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, he didn't go back to Jerusalem. The Lord led him down into Arabia where he was personally taught by Jesus Christ. And so this is why Paul taught the Thessalonian church about the rapture. This is why he chastised the Galatian church for starting off in the spirit and then going back into, under the law. This is what he taught the Philippi, Philippian church, which is joy under suffering. The, the reason why Paul was given this job was that he was personally tutored by Jesus. It's absolutely amazing. And, and Paul states this later on. He said, I was given a stewardship that I cannot absolve myself of, and that is preaching the gospel as far as Jesus will send me. And that's the, that's the amazing thing. And, and you know, um, even um, Andy Woods uh, was, was saying, uh, made mention to the fact that um, um, all of the great um, personages, even in the Old Testament, were dealt with personally by God. Moses at the burning bush, Moses up on Mount Horeb when he received the Ten Commandments and the, um, uh, the building plans for the tabernacle, Abraham, God appeared to Abraham seven times personally from the call out of Ur of the Chaldees until um, he was uh, an elderly man. And so if you are personally tutored by God, you have a responsibility and, and a calling on your life to do what he's asked to tell you. And we can't escape that. Do you know why? Because each and every one of us is indwelt by God and we have every Thing we need to fulfill what he has called us to do. So if that pinches a little bit, just never forget that 
you say, well, well, what's my ministry? Well, have you got a deli nearby where you know the person who owns it and you're friendly with them behind the counter? Don't ever resile, don't ever pull back from giving them the gospel or, or even at least starting a conversation on that. And you might get one rejection, two rejection, three, three rejections, and then something will happen in their life. The next time you go into the deli, they'll say, um, uh, listen, um, you know, you've been talking about your faith. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? It's perseverance. It's, it's really um, um, meeting people where they are and being constant in your faith and being loving and being um, humble. And don't beat anyone over the head, over the head with the Bible. It never works. But just, just persevere <laughs> and come alongside them. All right, let's get going. Verse 10, by grace, Paul calls himself a wise master builder. And this is, these next few verses are one of my favorites. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise, wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. And, and um, the word there of wise master builder in the Greek actually means both architect and constructor. So, so Paul is taking both responsibilities on himself. And by this, you know, when you're building a house, the first thing in WA that goes down is what? The slab. Yeah, the foundation. And if there is something wrong with that foundation, there's something wrong with the house. And um, I was in the building and construction industry, and in, in particularly residential uh, new homes. And if the guys putting down the slab made a mistake, we couldn't fix it afterwards. Um, and here's a, here's a bit of building advice that you might want to um, retain. If you are ever building a house, and someone's putting down a slab, you go and get a very long piece of string and another person and you square every piece of that slab to make sure that every corner is 90 degrees. Because if it's not, when the bricky comes along, you're going to have all sorts of trouble trying to get things to line up. And I have been inside houses with long hallways that have been tiled and you can see the mistake and it can't be undone. So Paul is just emphasizing, I've laid the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And if any man builds on this with gold, silver, and precious stones, hay, wood, and stubble, each will receive his own reward. And it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Seriously? Um, I have been... Uh, in the company of people in tears uh, in, in the process of building a home. And I remember one down in Secret Harbour, this poor elderly lady, she had built this house with her superannuation money. Her husband had passed away. And I went down to this cottage that was built in Secret Harbour and she was in tears when I walked in and, and, and I said, what's the matter? And she was, she, Stuart, look at this. And it was one of these long cottages that had the main load-bearing wall down the centre. So you had the living quarters on one side of this main wall and the, the utility features on the other side of the wall. And she had hung a painting. 
and the top of the painting was hard up against the wall and the bottom of the painting was about an inch and a half hanging outside from the wall. So the wall was actually on about a 37 millimeter lean from the floor to the ceiling and it was too late to do anything about it. And she had complained to the building authority, she complained to everyone about it. And the rule in construction is, if you haven't picked that up before the roof plate goes on your walls, you have no legal right to of redress. And, and I always remembered Paul's particular passage here in 1 Corinthians when I was in that game. Because if you don't look after the foundation, the house is going to be a disaster. And if you don't teach the elemental truths correctly to Christians, you're going to breed people who have no idea about the, the deeper things of Christ and will never grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is why he lays this down so heavily um, in, in these next verses. Um, and, and the thing is, in verse 12, 13, and 14, there is a reference now to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, if anyone builds, this is verse 12, we're going to have to move it on. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, capital D, that's when you stand before Jesus in heaven, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work, what sort of it is, and if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. Now, Jesus does, so many people come to, to me and said, what has the fire been and what, does he burn our good works? Or no, he doesn't get a Bunsen burner. It's his divine judgment in assessing what you have been doing on earth, witnessing for him. It's, it's divine judgment, um, grading your work, if you like. And, you know, that's why if you're ever um, in the business of teaching the Bible, boy, you better, better stick to the word of God. Because what does James chapter 3 verse 1 say? Brethren, not many of you, not many of you seek to be teachers, for we shall endure a, a, a harsher judgment. And what I've seen on YouTube and I've seen from pulpits over the last 20, 25 years, I shudder for some people because what they speak on behalf of Jesus makes me tremble for them because teachers of the word will endure a tougher judgment than anyone else. Why? Because you are presenting Jesus to a flock, a congregation, and you have the ultimate responsibility to stick to the scriptures. And um, enough said. Um, your gold, silver, and precious stones, they are imperishable. They will last. They will be what you are rewarded for. The hay, wooden stubble, and believe it or not, no one's perfect. You sometimes, when you're listening to people um, online, um, they give the impression, you know, that they're pretty good. Uh, let me tell you, no one is that good. And everyone has a little bit of hay, wooden stubble that needs to be taken off at the judgment seat. 
to leave behind the gold, silver, and precious stones. Um, and, and your faith in Jesus Christ is one of those things. Your belief in Jesus Christ is one of those things. And your sharing your faith is one of those things. And so never, ever um, um, under, undersell the value of whatever it is that you have in Christ to give to someone else. Seriously, we, we really have to do it. Um, a lot of us are, are, you know, are scared of it. I, I find the toughest people are our own family members because they know us too well. It's the stranger in the field that we meet in our workplace and our, our, our social activities. They're the ones that we should be aiming at and someone else can grab our families. Um, and that's happened. It's happened where um, um, someone else has brought, um, you know, people that, that we live with and, and all the rest of to, to a, even to a stronger level of faith um, that we weren't able to because family ties are sometimes just too close. Mm -hmm. Um, in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he'll himself be saved. Yet so is through fire, though, through, through judgment. And that's God's, Jesus' divine judgment on you. You don't have to run over a, 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 one of these hot stone things, as some people have suggested. That's just silly. That's really silly. Um, and that's actually pagan, believe it or not. In verse 16, Paul is getting through to us. Do you not know that you are... Now, in some versions of the Bible, this is the problem with translations. You've got the definite article, um, the, whereas in some translations, you've got the indefinite article, a. And it goes back to this thing that you are a living stone in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a living stone. You are not the temple of the God. Mm -hmm. You are part of the temple of God. And you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. But it's when all of the church comes together, that's when we are the temple of God. Because each one of us is a building component in that. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now... Verse 17, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now, what on earth is he meaning by that? Eric, can you bring up the Matthew 18 passage for me, please? This verse 16 is the one that stopped you. Yes. In Matthew 18, this is, this is a passage in scriptures. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to it because it's the most mis- represented, well, one of the most misrepresented passages in the Gospels. So Matthew 18, 1 to 6. What, if you're, you know, for, for those who are new to the Bible study, I, um, I uh, at church, I've trained, the, hopefully trained the con congregation to respond in a particular way. So the people in this room better behave themselves. If you're buying a house, what are the three most important things? Location, 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 location. right? If you're exegeting a passage of scripture, what are the three most important things? Context, context, context. Someone's going to be in big trouble over here soon. 18 verse 1 to 6. At that time... The disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
What is the context of this passage? The passage is a lack of humility in the disciples because they're all arguing amongst each other and had been for some time. Who is the greatest among the 12? And even the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, had the cheek, the chutzpah, to come to Jesus and say, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, can my two boys sit by the side of you? Now, that is such a good Jewish mother. One's probably a doctor and one's probably a lawyer. And Jesus said, no, it's not up for me to assign that. And by the way, listen to what Jesus said in this. By the way, it's already been decided. That's a fascinating statement, okay? So in 18 verse 2, the context is who is the greatest out of the disciples, and Jesus really gets into them. Jesus calls a little child to himself and sets him in the midst of the disciples, verse 3, and says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, that is, born again, and become as little children, you will know by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what we call a similitude. He's not focusing on the child. He's using the child as an example of a new believer coming into the faith as a little child. And we all know that, that when you have children and they're growing up, um, unless you're a highly dysfunctional family, if you are teaching children things, the children will believe what you say. You know, because your mum, your dad, you must you must obviously be telling me the truth. And as I was preparing this message tonight, I was laughing because I can remember when I was a little kid, and unfortunately my dad was a mason, and every once a month he at night time he used to get dressed up to go out. And I used to say to my big dad, I used to say, Dad, where are you going? And he said, used to say to me, I'm going to see a man about a dog. And that was his euphemism, all right? I didn't understand what he was doing. I wished uh, he'd lasted long enough until I was born again because I would have given him a kick up the backside for being a mason. But anyway, he passed before that happened. But I used to go to bed really excited that night thinking that the next morning we were going to have a little puppy in the house. <laughs> because he said to me, I'm going to see a man about a dog. And I used to go to my brother and say, we're getting a dog tomorrow. <laughs> so this is this is what Jesus is saying. That as little unless you become, you know, teachable like little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse four. Therefore, whoever humbles himself, like this little child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's telling the disciples that it's humility that Jesus is looking for, not boasting against one another. You know, the, the disciples, if you're following Matthew in the, in, the, in the gospel, they've been arguing with each other about who's the big cheese in the 12. And, and this is exactly what Paul is talking to the Corinthians about. They're elevating people up and say, we belong to the preferred gang. And so Jesus is saying, unless you humble yourself like a little child, you will not be the greatest of the in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5, Eric. So whoever receives 
one little child like this in my name. He's talking about new believers, all right, not children. A lot of people have been saying that this applies to children and the mistreatment of children and all the rest of it. It does nothing of the sort because the Greek word for children in this passage, it means least or small. The actual Greek word for children doesn't turn up until chapter 19, verse 13, when parents actually bring their children to Jesus and ask him for a blessing. That's when children are children. But what Jesus is saying in this, in this particular passage is that if you, unless you come to Jesus with the faith, the open-mindedness of a little child and, and exhibit humility, understanding what you've received through salvation, you are in big trouble in the kingdom because you are letting vanity and pride get the better of you. Verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones, that's a, now this new is not children, believer. this is new believers. And I have seen, this is a really powerful passage because Sue and I have seen this done. Whoever causes one of these little ones, which is new believers, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung round his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoa. When new believers come into church, if one of these false teachers or these vainglorious people get hold of them and damage their faith, they're in trouble with Jesus. And that's what this, this passage is all about because the context is the, is the disciples arguing about who's the greatest and Jesus said, you should seek humility and then leave it up to God to decide where your elevation is. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in this particular passage. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 3. We better, I don't know if we're going to make it then, but we'll try. 1 Corinthians 3. Has, how many people have heard that um, exegeted that correct way? Or has it always been related to children? Yeah, it's not. It's humility. Always look at the context, what they're arguing about. And in, in the second part of that passage, they're talking about um, binding and loosing, which is about church discipline, not um, Pentecostal insanity saying that you can bind and loose things. You know, you can bind. People are going around, I'm serious, they've been at trying to bind Satan. And Chuck Smith says if that's true, then his chain is, chain is too long. Because um, he's still at work at this time. Okay, so that's that that warning in verse seventeen. So eighteen through to twenty-two is let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. That's that Matthew passage. Passage. Don't elevate yourself above what is reasonable in the Christian context. For wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And there are a couple of uh, quotes there from both Job and the Psalms. Verse 21, therefore let no one boast in men for all things are ours. You know, you, no one in the, in the church of God at the moment 
can believe what God has got in store for us. And that was that previous um, teaching where no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of the things that our Father in heaven has for us. And believe it, we have it. Um, and 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And here's the kicker in the last verse. You belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to the Father. So don't forget that you're in a hierarchy and the ultimate person in charge of everything is God, your heavenly Father. Yeah. We made him. And, and if you can unmute people, um, I know we've rushed through it and I know there's, there's some interesting things there, but if anyone wants to ask a question, I'm quite uh, happy to um, answer it. Karen, you look like you're about to ask a question. I wish to follow the proper word in, in the Our Father when he says we must not use his name in vain. That is... That's the preaching. third commandment. That's the third commandment, but yeah. that is also not preaching correctly as well as also not projecting what he is correctly. Um, it also applies to, you know, Jews four, where secret men, uh, men secretly come into a congregation calling themselves Christians yes. and they be nothing but troublemakers. Yeah. Um, the third commandment is, uh, take not the Lord, uh, the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished who takes the name in vain. Do you see what I mean? So uh, in one of the best exegesis of that I've heard is if you're calling yourself a Christian but causing trouble in a church, you're in big trouble. Right. Anyone else? Anyone got some questions? Pastor Stuart, it's yes. Laura. Hi. Hello. It's not so much a question, but yeah. I just wanted to share something about evangelism. Oh, I can't see you anymore. <laughs> Oh, there you go. I can see now. Um, it, just the, the verse uh, 7, 8 and 9 about planting. I've, evangelism is something that's been um, a struggle with me uh, yeah. because I think I misunderstood it. And I came across um, apologetics is, is something I'm really interested in because sharing the faith and defending the faith is something I struggle with. Yeah. And I've always thought that evangelism was about um, um, reaping the harvest, yeah. reaping the harvest, yeah. getting that confession, getting, getting that person in front of us to um, accept Jesus and say the sinner's prayer. Well, I think I was really wrong in that because evangelism is a lot broader than that. And that's what I've learned. Um, and I also will cut the long story short. I came, I can't see you anymore. <laughs> um, I came across, I came across a, a gentleman um, by the name of Gregory Kukul. I don't know if you've heard of him or if anyone's heard of him. Um, oh. he, and he writes a book called Tactics. And um, he talks about being gardeners and harvesters. He talks about sowing seeds. And I know that this is something you've touched on tonight as well. Yeah. And um, it's quite liberating because he says not everybody is going to be at that point of harvesting somebody's 
life, somebody's faith. But a lot of us, we misunderstand. We actually need to understand that we're sowing seeds and sowing seeds might um, be very, it it can come in many many different ways. Anyway, in his book, he talks about listening in a conversation and he talks about asking the right questions and he he gives us lots of tactics um and he it's as simple as maybe seeing somebody who's wearing a cross as a necklace and just saying oh i see you're wearing a cross tell me more about that you know just inviting that conversation and i have to tell you it has just freed me in 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 feeling confident yeah. I have a couple of tactics. It's not always about throwing the gospel at somebody when no. the timing is not right. You no, know what exactly. I'm saying? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Look, um, one of the best examples I can give you is that when I was in the building industry, my son and I were working together as a team. He still says it's the best three years of his life. I mean, we just got on like a house on fire, but we were in a factory we used to go into a factory and pick up um, um, our, our supplies for the day. And it very quickly became uh, obvious to all the rest of the factory workers that we were Christians. So one of the guys challenged me and was quite aggressive towards me. And I just um, smiled at him and smiled at him and, um, and, and you know, kept telling them, and then some weird things happened. That would have been nearly 20 years ago. Some weird things started happening around the world, you know, and, and he stopped me one day and said, what do you think's happening? And I said, well, it's in the Bible, you know, it's that these things are in the Bible. And he said, well, can you show me? And so the funny thing is um, we were doing a study of Revelation. I think it was when that young guy was attending um, the Sunday night service down in Cannington, uh, Canningvale. And I started telling this guy in the factory about Revelation. And do you know what? From there on in, he used to stop me as I was entering yeah. the, 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 yeah. the thing. And it was just, uh, all I said to him is these things are in the Bible. Yeah. And what every one of us who's on the screen at the moment, everyone around the world who's listening at the moment, so many unbelievers are saying, what on earth is going on? Yeah. And the best thing you can say, but all of this is in the Bible. And yeah. they'll, either, they'll either get attracted to that thing and say, yes, well, tell me a little bit about it or, or teach me about it. But, you know, th- this guy was fascinated about Revelation and I gave him basically a personal Revelation teaching over about 12 months. And I saw him many years later. He ran up to me and he said, you know, I took your advice and he said, I sold my house in Subiaco, put it all into gold, and now I'm worth millions. And I thought, yeah, but that's not quite what I was trying to get. <laughs> uh, but, 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 you know, he, I, was telling him, I was telling him, you know, that, that, that we're going to have walk on streets of gold and all the rest of it. <laughs> and and, um, and but he so he sold his, his mansion in Subiaco, put it into gold, and and quadrupled his money. Well, and, there you go. And, and but he did, <laughs> you see, he did. He chased me down in a shopping centre years later, and I said to him, I said, no, you really need to chase after Jesus, not the gold price. And yeah. so I I planted. I'm hoping that someone's going to water. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's good. Brilliant. 
It does free you, Laura, because you're not responsible for the whole process from yes. start to finish. You're just a little piece in the puzzle. And yes. if you give what you're supposed to give, then someone else will come along and, and finish it off. And, and, there, uh, yeah. there are churches and preachers and people that really push for this evangelism to actually... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you know? And that that's that's yeah, that's wrong because yeah. it's it's not. I mean, it's very rare. I'm yeah. sure that happens, but I think it's rare. And yeah. we need to really understand that sowing those seeds is far more important than anything. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know. I've, I've underestimated just, yeah. it. Can I just emphasize that I I get we were Sue and I were at a very large church in the 90s and we had visiting speakers from all over the world and the ones I disliked the most were the ones that boasted about them leading many people to Christ yeah. right yes yeah, hey, whatever happened to the Holy hey, Spirit that's his job yeah I've got a problem with that because yep. if if they in fact did all they are doing is finishing off a process that many other people started yes. earlier in the in, in the in the class. You see what I mean? And if you go boasting about this sort of thing, um, I think you're going to be in trouble with the Holy Spirit because um, you're actually taking the glory from God and giving it to yourself. And so, you know, you, you know, do you know the Gospel of Saint Francis of Assisi? Yeah. It, I, that, that's absolutely beautiful. St. Francis of Assisi once said, preach the gospel at all times and in every situation and as a last resort, resort use words. Yeah, love it, love it. Yeah. Your, lifestyle, your lifestyle is the best witness for people who are not living the Christian life. And that challenges people, do you know what I mean? And so... Um, there are very there are different ways of witnessing to people, um, and and at the end of the day, if they come up to you and they say, you know, uh, like like Sue had an incident, you know, three or four weeks ago, where one of her workmates just came up to her and it just flowed from from um, uh, a, a simple conversation to Sue le leading her in the sinner's um, prayer. And accepting Jesus and now she's accepting all this this Bible stuff and all the rest of it but that that was at the end of a process do you know what I mean it wasn't a all-in-one package that happened just then so ever any I don't want anyone here ever to feel that they're not doing the work of Christ if they don't have a bus queue of saved people behind their name. Do you know what I mean? It's so bad. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyone else? Laura, Laura, can you just give the name of um, the guy that wrote that book that you spoke about? Greg Cook. Oh, it's called Tactics. Can you see it? Yes. And it's Gregory Cookle. K-O-U-K-L. And the book is called Tactics. He is very, very good. Um, he's actually comes from an active listening point of view and he's very challenging. In fact, one of the things, two things, sorry, sorry, Pastor Stewart, two uh -huh. things he says. First of all, if in the conversation one of you ends up yelling and screaming or getting angry, mm -hmm. you've lost exactly. the argument. 
Exactly. Lost the argument. That is not what it's meant to be. Secondly, he says, um, he says, he challenges us just to put a little pebble in someone's shoe. In other words, give them something to think about. Make them feel a little bit uncomfortable in their ideas and in their thinking, and is is wonderful. Is yeah. Yeah. Well, it's already someone in the room has taken note of, of the book and the, the author, so it, it's going it, that's a benefit for you sharing us that, that with us today. Right. Yeah. Anyone else? I think the Holy Spirit leads in these things too when you're having these conversations. Yeah. Um, I've got a new student. Um, I teach with Reed right now, just on a voluntary basis, once a week, and I've got a new student. And I had my second lesson with her this week. The first lesson was last week, <clears throat> and discovered that she's um, wanting pronunciation and writing because she's learning hypnotism and believes in hypnotism and um, past lives and all this sort of thing. <laughs> So I've had lots of people praying. Um, anyway, this week, uh, during the course of the lesson, I said something and she said, well, I believe this. And I said, okay, you tell me what you believe. And because speaking is a big part of what we're doing, I let her speak and I listened and I listened. <clears throat> and then she said, well, you believe in Jesus. And I've got this bag that I use that says Jesus Christ is my saviour or something on it and it was facing out so she could see it. And I said, yes, I do. And she said, will you tell me what you believe? Oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I'm going I'm I'm to blow your whole minds in a minute. A group of pastors were, called, were, were collected together about two weeks ago down in Canning Vale and we watched a Zoom presentation from the senior pastor in Crossways Church in Melbourne about because he's very upset about the the, the statistics in, in Australian Christianity is that we're losing Christians, right? Um, we're, we're, we're just not winning people to Christ. And he said he was getting tired of people coming up to him and saying, do you know how many people are coming to Christ in China or Iran or North Korea? And, and it was on his heart to say, I want to hear a narrative about people coming to Christ in Australia. And so they developed this, this program over a period of time, a little bit like that, Laura, is that you don't ask someone, they, they train people to do this, but I'm just condensing it very shortly. But people um, um, can work, reach out to workmates or friends and say to them, would you like one day just to read a, a, a small part of the Bible with me? Not, I'm going to teach you, or do you want to study? Because teach and study put people off because it frightens them because they don't know anything about it. But if you say, would you like to just read it with me one day, um, it's, not, it, it, it's not combative. And it's turned out to be very successful, so successful. And listen to this. This is amazing. One of the... The, the, the students in this program went to his work one day and he had a Muslim mate called Mohammed, go figure. And he said to this guy at lunchtime, one day, Mohammed, would you like to read just a little portion of, of the Bible with me? And Mohammed said to this guy, I've never read the Bible. 
I'd love to, to do that. So the next day, they read a small portion of Luke. And anyway, the, 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 I think it was Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was in the synagogue telling the people that, uh, you know, the, the passage from Isaiah 60. Uh, you know, uh, I'm going to give sight to the blind, let the lame walk, I'm going to set the prisoners free and all the rest of it. Well, Muhammad went away from that lunchtime meeting um, and he, what he did was, unbeknownst to all the Christians involved, he went and got 11 of his Muslim mates and invited them around to his house one uh, day and said, you know, this workmate of mine, we read this piece of this uh, part of the Bible. Let's do it. So these 12 Muslims got together and they read a piece of Luke by themselves. And there were three ladies in that 12, 12 Muslim group. And they went away to their homes. And when Muhammad called them back the next week to read a bit more of Luke, one of the ladies came up to Muhammad that night and said, I want to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And so, so Muhammad freaked out and said, well, he didn't know anything about baptism. So they, they searched the Bible, found John 1, saw John the Baptist, dipping people in the Jordan. So do you know what they did? They filled up the bath in the bathroom and these Muslim blokes baptized this woman in the bath in the name of Jesus. And then Muhammad came back to his mate and said, were we allowed to do that? And the guy was flustered. <laughs> he says, I'm not quite sure. But, but do you see, if, anything can happen if you have the courage to reach out. And this workmate went to, to Muhammad and said, would you like to read the Bible? Muhammad said, yes. All of a sudden, the lady's getting baptised in the bath. You know, it, it, and there was not a Christian present. And, and so uh, maybe that's a lesson for us, for us all, I guess. But, I mean, obviously she would have been drawn to, you know, a Christian um, uh, grouping after that. But that just showed me. And, and this guy, the senior pastor of that church said, Anything can happen if you have the courage to just take the first step and plant a seed. And, and that was just unbelievable. Anyway, it's been over an hour and a half. It's been wonderful to see you again. Um, and thank you for all your birthday wishes from last week. We had a wonderful time. And um, we'll see you all again next Wednesday. <laughs>